Okay, Parashat Noach. This is going to be a little bit of a hybrid um, between Parashat Noach and Breshit, as you'll see. Um, I want to dedicate this. Um, I have a student who sent in a request uh, to dedicate the shear. Uh, so I want to thank Justin and Tali Pines, who are not only sponsoring the shear, but uh, the Cholent, which is obviously more important. Um, in memory of Murray Pantira, he was the sole Holocaust survivor of a family of nine from Krakow who was saved by Asko Schindler uh, when he was placed on Schindler's list. And with no money and no knowledge of English, he became a successful real estate developer who honored Schindler's deeds and named over 25 streets in New Jersey after him, um, supported Holocaust awareness. He was a founding member. I didn't know him, but this is what Justin is telling me. Um, he was a founding member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. Um, and he was appointed to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum Council by both President Ronald Reagan and President George Bush. So, um, and he was actually blessed to see his story told on the big screen. He lived to see the movie Schindler's List um, and to own property in Israel, to live to see his eldest great-granddaughter attend Jewish Day School, which was his revenge on the Nazis. So we're going to dedicate this series in memory of him. Um, so I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, maybe I told you this story, but it's too good to pass up. Um, so many years ago, uh, we, um, Israelite, ran a couple of retreats in Florida. And without getting into the whole story, ended up with my family in Orlando. Now, if you're with your family and have your little kids in Orlando, where are you going to go? Disney. So we went to spend the day at Disney. I, I, I had been there as a kid. I'd never been there since. My kids had never been there. It's a pretty eye-opening experience for kids who grew up in Israel. And, um, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you think you're probably never going to get back there and you have one day, you're going to milk Disney for everything it's worth, right? And uh, we really did a lot. And the park closes at like 10 or something like that. So if you're a tourist and you're all the way from Israel, you're there till 10. I mean, you're like, they start ushering you out at like 9.30. So, you know, with thousands and thousands of people who were heading out of the park, now they're very clever. You're exhausted. By 9.30 at night, after a full day with, you know, four little kids, the youngest was three, in Disney, you are absolutely exhausted, okay? And you're just ready to get back to your car, hoping that you remember where you parked it, get back to where you're staying, and the last day you're walking out, right, they've got you walking past all these stores. And you have to actually walk through the stores to get out towards the trial, the tram to your cars because they want you to buy things, right? So, of course, we're walking out and um, the kids, like, you know, it's like Disney candy heaven. So all the kids are, like, grabbing all these things. Abba, can we have this? Can we have that? Right? And I'm taking a look at them and fortunately or unfortunately, they're all trafe, right? They don't have anything kosher. So one by one I say, no, sorry, it's not kosher, it's not kosher, whatever. Okay, fine. And we're walking out, there's a little bit of a line, we're walking out. And there's this girl behind the counter, she couldn't have been more than 18, and she's staring at me. She's like staring at me with this look of stupefaction. Like, I said, good evening, it was great, thank you so much, it was great. She goes, what did you just do? I'm like, I don't know, what did I just do, right? <laughs> you know, I didn't shoplift or anything, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, what did you just say to your children? I said, what are you talking about? She says, I go through this recipe every night. Every night, I'm at the cashier, people are coming out, and they hit these counters. 
And all the kids grab candy and chocolates, whatever, and all the parents say, we want to go, and the parents always lose. Like, you got four kids, it's 9.30 at night, you're just going to get them the chocolate and go. And you said something to your kids, and they just all put it back. And I started laughing. I said, oh, I told them, you know, it was kosher, I'm Jewish, and we don't eat certain things. She's like looking at me in amazement, right? And I had this epiphany. I'd never thought about that before. Like, what an amazing concept. You have a mitzvah, you have a lacha that teaches you self-control. Now, why is that so important? Why is that so important? Okay? So, I want to share with you an idea. Um, there is a fundamental question when it comes to Parsha Noach. Okay, Parsha Noach, it's like a depressing Parsha. It's not the beginning of Breshit. It's not the beginning of the Jewish people in Lech Lecha. It's just, let's mess it up again. Shem creates the world, not going to work, right? Hashem sees that the world is a mess, right? And to begin the parasha, Hashem says, The land is full of violence. People just take him whatever they want. I'm going to destroy the world. Okay, that's depressing. The world gets destroyed. But you know what? Sometimes there's a Yerida Sometimes you have to sort of fail in order to succeed. So maybe that's what's happening here. Okay. So Hashem destroys the world. And, you know, By the way, what does Rashi say this means? What is Kihishrit? Hamas is violence, but not only violence, but okay. But what's Hashchata? It's a particular form of destruction. So Rashi in Perak Vav. Pasuk Yutet. Um, maybe it's the end of. Yeah. Vatishachet um, Aretz, if they ever came, it's Pasuk Yudalef. And Rashi says, what does it mean, Vatishachet Aretz? Lashon Erva. It's about idolatry and adultery. Two out of the three biggies. It's an interesting question. Okay. So the world was filled with licentious behavior. People are just having a big orgy. Now, don't get me wrong. I get that Akash Baruch Hu says, like, this is not what we created the world for. If it happened in the yeshiva, I'd close the base medrash. But, you know, you don't get carried away destroy the world. People are having fun. What do you want from them? Why is this so terrible? Okay. Besitter. Right? So, and Rashi goes even further. Which is very interesting, because Rashi comes to explain Pshat. Rashi says, I'm looking at the context. This is what's important for us to know. Listen to this person. This is an unbelievable Rashi. Rashi in Pesach Yudbet says the following. Right? Ki hishchit kol basar et darkol aretz. Right? All the animals. You ever wonder why Hashem destroys all the animals? Oh, it's very simple. Right? Ki hishchit kol basar. Afilu beimach hayavaof nizkakin l'shenen minat. The elephants are fooling around with the giraffes. That's what Rashi says. You can't make this stuff up. You know, the lions are getting it on with the dogs. It's just not cool. Snakes don't belong with orangutans. Right? You know, keep to your species. What is going on here? Rashi says, oh, that's why the world's destroyed? You know what? If you went to a, 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 a safari park and you saw a hippo 
trying to get it on with a zebra, you'd take a video, it would go viral on whatever, media. Hashem says, that's it, everybody out of the pool, we're going to destroy the world. Like, what is that about? What is this about? What's the flood about? Okay, by the way, if Hashem created the world, and the world's a mess, who messed up? Like if we have a yeshiva, and there's an orgy of idolatry in the basement every morning, and we have to close the yeshiva, so it'd be easy for us to blame you, but I think that would be on us. Like if we can't figure out how to run yeshiva properly, then, then we failed. So if the world gets filled with violence, and it's one big orgy fest, so kind of the creator should bear a little responsibility. So that's somewhat theologically problematic. But okay, Hashem says, you know what, we're going to try again. How do you try to create a world again? You destroy the world, and you start over again with one guy. What's the guy's name? Noach. Why is he called Noach? Anybody know? End of Parsha Breshit. Who's Noach's father? Oh, guys, you've got to start practicing. Laning's a good way to know this stuff. Noach's father's named Lemech. Okay? Um, that's an interesting question, what a Lemech is in modern Hebrew. You can look that up. It's kind of funny, but I'm not going to go there. Lemech names his son Noach. Why? Hashem is going to bring us comfort or cause us to change our ways. Something's going to change with Noach. That's a whole interesting discussion we're not going to get into. So, Noach. Noach and his wife, Nama, and their children, Shem, Ham, and Yefet, they're going to start, and their families. Now, by the way, they get out of the ark, and if we take the Torah at face value, there is now one ancestor to the entire world. Everybody's descended from Noach in the whole world. So Noach is really Adam too. I know Rav Salvechik talks about Adam 1 and Adam 2, that's not what he's talking about, but I'm calling Noach Adam 2. We're going to start over again. This is exciting. So the flood is over. Noach gets out of the ark. Right? Now, it starts off well. Noach offers up a carbon. Then it becomes a mess. What's the first thing Noach does after he says thank you to God? He plants a vineyard. Now, come on. Really? Like, you could plant bananas, apples, watermelons, celery, carrots. That's a good, you know... You could get chickens to lay eggs and have protein. No. We've got to plant a vineyard. And what does he do? He gets drunk. He gets drunk, and he's naked in his tent. Which sounds suspiciously like the erva and nakedness that was going on before. This is a mess. So if the first thing a human being does is to get drunk and naked in his tent, then the world's failing again. Okay. And then we're not done yet. There's one thing that the, that the world has going for it. Do you know what it is? They all get together. They leave wherever they are from the flood. They travel eastwards. That's an interesting discussion for another time. They find a valley. And what do they do? Anybody remember? They're going to build a tower. By the way, a tower and? And a city. Now, put aside for the moment what it is they're doing. Clearly, God has a big problem with what they're doing. Right? Hashem is not happy with this. Okay? So, we've started over, and it's a mess. Right? And what is, how does this start? If you look in Parakir Aleph, which is the story of Migdal Bravel, everybody talks one language. Can you imagine 
If everybody talks Hebrew, or everybody talks English, or everybody talks Arabic, what would be the value of that? You could talk to your neighbors. You could talk to your enemies. That would be a good thing. Right? So, Vayikola Aretz, Safachat, Udvarim Achadim. They're all the same mindset. And they all get together and they say, right? Vayamru Yishel Re'ehu, the word Re'ah, right? That's a good thing. They're giving to each other, they're sharing, they want to build something together. Hava Nivnelanu Ir. Hashem comes to take a look. Now, put aside for a moment what that means and how does Hashem have to come down and this happens with stone. I'm not going to go there right now. It's a great question. But, there's one people and they all have the same language. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. That's awesome. Right? We're all, what, what's the biggest problem we have today in Judaism? That's what people say. Disunity. They had unity. They all speak the same language. They're all the same minds. They're all doing the same things. Shem says, look what they're doing. They're building a tower. Okay. We're not going to let them do this. We're going we're gonna to mess up their languages. Right? You all know the story. Right? They shouldn't hear each other. And then Hashem scatters them over the whole world. They become scattered. And this place is called Bavel, Kisham Balal Hashem Sfat From that place, they're split up and they're separated all over the world. So the one thing I think the world had going for it was that they were all together. They were all unified. What does Hashem say? Oh, that's a disaster. We don't want them unified. Nobody's going to fight with each other. Let's split them up. How do you understand this? The world is created, it gets destroyed. Noah comes out, makes a mess of it. Migdal Bavel, let's split them up. Things are not going well. Now, the Torah is not a history book. This is not a book where it just says, look what happened. This is all part of a bigger picture. Okay? This is all part of a bigger picture. Stick with me. Here, don't worry about the attendance, right? This is all part of a bigger picture. The story in Breshit, the story in Noah, it all leads us to Lech Lecha. It all leads us to, I guess it's not working to have one person be the answer to the whole world. It's not working to have everybody think the same thing. It's not working, right, that we don't have some system. So let's see if we can create something better. So who comes along? Avram Avinu. And that's Lech Lecha. How did Breshit Noach lead us to Lech Lecha? Why did it fail and what's going on? Now, in order to understand this story... We have to take a look at where this all began. The root of this whole question is in the story of Eitzadat. Okay, a few of us started talking about this in the car. We didn't get to finish it. Then I thought, you know, this is too important a topic to miss just because Parsha Breshit isn't the beginning of the year in Yeshiva. So this is an important discussion. And I would like to say that the story of Eitzadat is a crazy story. And there are three critical pieces to understanding this story. The first is we have to understand what the Eitzadat is. The second is we have to understand who the Nachash was. He's the one who stirs the pot. And the third is a little bit of a surprise we're going to have to understand. So let's talk about the Eitzadat. Okay? What is the Eitzadat? This is rather bizarre. Shem creates a tree called Eitzadat Tovarah. 
Now, presumably, right, if the tree is the fruit of good and evil, right, the tree, good and evil, then presumably, if you eat from this tree, you will... Well, that's what Hashem says. But no, if you eat the fruit, what does the fruit look like? It's good and evil fruit. I don't know what that means. Were there beautiful fruit, moldy fruit? I don't know. Was it a fruit called good and evil? I don't know. But if you eat from the fruit of this tree, you presumably will know the difference in good and evil. Well, so that's an interesting question. Why wouldn't Hashem want us to know the difference in good and evil? Like, if you don't know the difference, there are all sorts of people in the world who have no idea what the difference is between good and evil. We call them psychopaths, right? Why would Hashem want that? Why would you create a tree, good and evil, and tell us not to eat from it? By the way, why would you create a tree of good and evil at all? Like, shouldn't we be created with an inherent knowledge of good and evil? Don't we believe in that? And, and let's go a stage further. If they don't know the difference between good and evil before they eat from the tree, how can they be held accountable for eating from the tree? Right? So the Eitzadat is rather strange. Now the Rambam, um, the Ramban and the, Ram, and the Rambam talk about this. The Ramban on this Pasuk, okay, actually says it very simple. Most of them agree it can't be that they don't know the difference between good and evil. Because then they wouldn't be accountable. And they are clearly accountable. So what's the tree, what, what, is, what is eating for the fruit of good and evil? So the Ramban says as follows. The way I see this story, it's a longer Ramban, I'm just quoting you a short piece. Human beings are created to do whatever they're created to do. Birds will fly, fish will be in the water, and human beings will do whatever they do. There's no sense of good and evil, right? The sun will always rise in the morning. The sun isn't going to wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm tired of this. I want to sleep during the day. Have some fun at night. Right? The fish doesn't jump out of the water and say, I want to fly. Right? Because it's meant to be in the water. So human beings are created and they'll be like all the animals and all the creatures Hashem created to do what they're meant to do. Whatever that is. Right? They won't change what their purpose is. If they're supposed to work the land, they'll work the land. If they're supposed to build fences, they'll build fences. There won't be love and hate. It'll just be simple. But the fruit of this tree, says the Rabban, Hayam this created in us desire. Right? And, and, and when we experience this desire, it will give us the opportunity to do good or do evil. They have no desires. And when, when, in the original plan, says the Ramban, man and woman, when it's time to have children, they just come together and they do what they're supposed to do. And listen to this line, this is unbelievable. Right? When it's time to give birth, they'll get together. You have a face, you have hands, you had avermin, uh, you had sexual organs. You know, it's just like your toes. You use them for whatever you use them. That's how they were going to be. And that's why they had no embarrassment. That's what the person says. They had no, right? They were both naked. There was no, because they were like animals. So what is the Ramban talking about? What is a tree of knowledge? What does that mean? How does this work? So that's the first. The eight said that. We have to understand that. The second is the snake. And the snake is interesting. First of all, what do we know about the snake? 
so the snake walks, right? We know. How do we know the snake walks? Because the consequence of it later is right. Al From now on, you're going to crawl. Masma before it didn't crawl; it walked. You don't have to say that, but that seems to be the case. What else do we know about the snake? It talks. It's having a shmuzalech with chava. It's a little crazy. By the way, if you look in Unglis, what's the name for the snake in Unglis? Anybody know? Chavya. Chavya. Same thing. Why does Adam name his wife Chava? She's living. Aim Kolchai. You are life. Who was life before Chava is named Chava? The snake. The snake is Chavya, according to Unglis. That's weird. Okay? So the snake can talk and it can walk. What else do we know about the snake? It has desire. Let me ask you a question. Putting aside for the moment whether this story is literal or allegorical, you can easily read the Rambam in his introduction to Martin Vuchim that this is an allegory. Uh, it's not clear, but it may be that the Rambam, and Rambam is not the only one, that says that this story isn't about a literal or historical fact. We don't have to believe there was a walking, talking snake. There are many things in the Torah that are allegorical. When we talk about the hand of God, it doesn't mean God literally has a hand. Um, there were many Mufarshim who disagreed with the Rambam. They burned his books for this, among other things. So I'm not weighing in on that question. But I can tell you, to me personally, the question of whether there was actually a snake that talked to Adam and who Adam was is less important to me than what we're meant to make of the story and learn from it. Right? So I'm not weighing in on the question, but... Okay. <clears throat> but what motivates a snake? Like, snake's walking along, and he sees Chava and Adam, and he's like, you should eat from the tree. She's like, oh, we're not allowed to eat from the tree. She says, sure, push you and whatever. And then the next thing you know, well, a snake, like, it's a snake. What does it care what Chava does? What motivates the snake? So Rashi, Rashi actually talks about this, right? What motivates the snake? The snake, um, in, sorry, forgot we're back in Bridget, in Paragimel, um, the Nachash, Rashi says as follows, the beginning of Paragimel, Right? What does the snake have to do with the previous story of Adam and Eve and naming the animals? Right? Why did all of a sudden this snake intervene and want to mess up and, and, and play around with Adam and Chava? The snake saw them naked. And they were having relations in front of everybody. It's an interesting question. Who's everybody? It's just them, but okay, right? All the animals, it's not proper. There's a beaver there, come on, you shouldn't be doing this, right? That's a weird Rashi, right? Venit Avela, so the snake desired Chava. Now, this is not just a Medrash. Rashi quotes this Medrash. He believed this is critical to understanding the story. This is crazy Medrash. What's this story about? And the third topic, which is really fascinating, is... Something you don't expect. So, you eat from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, presumably when you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what happens? You know good and evil. And that's what the Pasuk says. Paragimel, listen to this Pasuk. Paragimel, Pasuk Zayn, Vatipakachna in Their eyes were open. When you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you become enlightened. Some, you begin to see a different reality. And they knew they were naked. What does what is knowing you're naked have to do with good and evil? Why is that what they know? And keep reading there. Right? Then they get scared. They're hiding from Akash Baruch and putting that aside. Okay? 
they hear Hashem walking in the garden. Or actually, they don't hear Hashem walking in the garden. They hear the voice of God, which means God is speaking somehow. Like, what? How do you hear the voice of God? What? Well, God's walking through the garden. They hear God. Like, what does that mean? That they hear Kol Hashem. Okay. And a curse Baruch who comes and says, Ayeka, where are you? Which, by the way, is one of the most powerful questions in the entire Torah. Like, obviously, Ayeka doesn't mean, oh, Adam, I can't find you, like you're a Kosh Baruch. Hashem is saying to Adam, where are you? Like, yesterday we were so close. Where are you? What word does Ayeka remind you of? Echa. This is one of the most tragic moments in human history. Why? Interesting. Right? Hamina eats mihi gidlacha ki eromata. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Because if you eat from the tree of knowledge of the needle, you find out you're naked. What is that? What's going on? Why is the nakedness important? Very strange. Right? Very strange. By the way, if we're already talking about this Arumim, so the Pasuk says that before this whole chait, Vayidu, Right? They were Arumim, they were naked. The very next Pasuk. Not off somewhere in Dvarim. Mom is the next Pasuk. Comes along the Nachash, he was Arum. Now we just heard that they're Arumim, they're naked. So if the Nachash is Arum, it should mean he's naked. Now in fact, a Nachash is naked. It doesn't have any fur, it's naked. But that's not what anybody translates this as. In fact, if you look at Unculus, Unculus translates Vayush Nehem Arumim, Adam and Chava were Arumim, as they were naked, right? Artilain, which means they were clothless, they were naked. But when it gets to the Nachash, it says, Vechidya, the Nachash, have a Chakim. It was cunning, shifty, smart. How could the same word in one Pasuk after the other mean two different things? So it must be. That nakedness, guys, guys, shh, echoes. It must mean that nakedness means both. How are they related to each other? How is to be cunning? What is that? What is, so what's this nakedness? Right? Okay. One last piece. So most of you know this. But I think it's a great example about how we're, we, we see something because we know it and we miss everything else. Right? So what was Chava's mistake? Anybody know what Chava's mistake was? What got her into trouble? Anybody remember? Yeah? The Nachash says that. It doesn't say you can't touch it. Oh, Hashem says, Mikol eitzagana choltuchel me'etzadat tovoral al You can't eat me'etzadat. But if you look at what Chava says, right? So Chava says, right? Um... Let me, let me just look this up one second. Um, sorry. Right. When we pray, I eat again, Right? You can't eat it and you can't touch it. Now, Sam never said you can't touch it. And the rabbis have a field day with this. Like, when you add things to the Torah, by the way, what mitzvah actually Isser, does this directly relate to in the Torah environment? Anybody know? 
Nope. Good guess. That's, that's, a good, that's not a mitzvah. That's an idea, so you're right. There's a specific mitzvah. Right. Okay, Baal Tosif. Baal Tosif. I remember I was in a school in America, um, Yeshiva High School, teaching for a year, which was why I don't teach high school anymore, because I just got that's not for me. Um, but there was like a group of rabbis there from the local Tel's Kolel or Lakewood Kolel. And when we got to Yom Atzimut, it became interesting. It was a Zionist school with a lot of Haredi teachers. So they were kind of struggling with the fact, you know, Yom Atzimut. And I said, look, you know, they had a rule. You have to have two rebellion and chakras in the morning. And I realized what was coming. So I said, listen, I just want to be clear. This is Sioni school. I'm going to be at Minyan that morning. We're saying hollow. Now you want to debate whether to say hollow with a bracha, without a bracha. That I could hear. But to live in a, in a, in a state, of, to, to, to realize that we've been given back the gift after 2,000 years of coming home to Israel, in the state of Israel, not to say hello, just blows my mind. But okay. So I didn't want anybody to be uncomfortable. I said, whatever. Um, and there was one rabbi, I guess he you know, drew the short stick, so he showed up that morning, and he was kind of in the back. And I led Halal, you know, with a guitar, you know, you can imagine. And uh, he kind of was in the back. So afterwards, guys came over and we say, how come he wasn't saying hello with you? I said, what do you mean? What was he doing? Because I was new to this. I'd never, you know. And uh, I was like 27, something like that. And um, I said, so what he was doing? He was saying to Hillel. I said, whoa. I said, and the rabbi said, you don't say hello. So I said, I'm going to give a shear. So I prepared some akaros, and I gave a shear that afternoon on why you say hello, and you know what's and when you say hello, and what it means. And I invited everybody to come. None of the rabbis showed up. Okay. So afterwards, for weeks afterwards, there was one particular rabbi who kept asking me, like he would say, well, what about this, or what about that? So I would give him an answer and say, oh. Then he'd come back the next day with another one. Finally, after a couple weeks, I, says, I said to him, you're obviously going back to someone and asking these questions and getting answers. Why don't we invite him to come to the school? And that ended the discussion. One of the things he said to me was, it's Baltosif. You're making a Chag, right, which is not in the Torah. So I said to him, well, according to Ramban, it's not Baltosif. Ramban says, it's only Baltosif if you think it's a Doraisa. If I think, if he adds something to the Torah, that's, and I say it's part of the Torah, then that's Baltosif, that's an Isidoraisa. And that has its root in this moment. And everybody notices this. And they talk about that you have to, you know, put a fence around the Torah. But there's a whole bunch of other things they miss. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Take a look at this. What does Chava say? Right? She says, Hashem says you can't eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the garden. But that's not what Hashem says. Hashem does not say that the fruit of, that the tree of knowledge is in the garden. Listen to the Pesach. The tree of life is in the garden. Rashi says, what's, what's betochagan in the garden? It's in the middle of the garden. The tree of life is the center of the garden. The Eitzada, Tovara, the Eitzada, it's just there, it doesn't say where it is. It's off somewhere, I don't know, it doesn't tell me, it's not important. Why does Chava switch that? Another interesting thing, Hashem says don't eat from the tree. Chava says Hashem says not to eat from the fruit of the tree. Now you can understand that you can't eat from the fruit of the tree, but that's not what Hashem says. I'll tell you something else that Chava does. Chava says, Hashem says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree, from the tr- fruit of the trees. Right? But she afterwards sees, she sees that the tree, which tree is she talking about now? It's a dat. Looks really good to eat. It's enticing to the eyes. It's wonderful. 
That's not what Hashem says. Hashem says, Mikol eitz nechmad All the trees are beautiful to look at and great to eat. She switches that to the other tree. And all the other trees that are so great, she just says they're trees. Now, you could just say that that's what we do when we want something. Like, this could be the unfolding of the Yetzirah. Okay. Chava wants to eat from that tree. So because she wants to eat from that tree, in her mind, that tree is the middle of the garden. You know, if I tell you, listen, you could look wherever you want, please don't look out that window. All of a sudden, everybody's looking at that window, trying to not look out the window. The window becomes the focus. In fact, 10 people in this room just turned around to look at the window, even though it's clearly just an example. That's how our minds work, right? If you want to eat from that tree, then that tree becomes the one that looks good to eat, right? Etc. But there's something else that's interesting here. Chava, according to the Ramban, should not have this kind of desire because she's just created to do what she's meant to do. But now because, either because of the snake or because she's now close to the tree, she's being affected by the tree. Everybody thinks that once you eat from the tree, something happens. Whatever it is that happens when you eat from the tree, it doesn't just start when you eat from the tree. It starts when you're near the tree. Right? Obviously, if a guy, God forbid, finds a woman that's married to someone and has an adulterous affair, he's done a terrible thing. But whatever that terrible thing is, it doesn't start when you're lying in a hotel room in some bedroom. It starts when you're sitting for a cup of coffee. It starts when she walks by the bus stop and you're busy learning Mishnahs and you look up. We get affected by this. So what is this whole story? What's the Eitzadah? What does that do with Noah? What's going on? Right? Where does this come from? So I want to give you a really deep idea. Okay? Oh, one last thing. This is really interesting. What happens at the end of the whole story of the tree of, of, of knowledge? Right? Hashem says, Right? Adam is now like us. Whatever us means, he's like God. He's going to be God-like. Now, if you're on a college campus and you're, where are you going to school? Why you? Oh, start. Okay. So you're in YU, right? I know how to pick them. You're in YU, and you see some guy, and it doesn't matter if he's wearing a black hat or he's got a ponytail, which you'll see both in YU, right? Okay? So, and you say to him, if you had to describe God, how would you describe God? What adjective would he choose? Let's see. What do you think the average person would say? If you ask the average person... You're in University of Maryland, University of Nebraska, Chvesnish, right? God is what? All-knowing, powerful, the creator, right? You know what you wouldn't say, right? Now Adam is like us, he knows the difference in good and evil. That's what makes you godlike? You know the difference in good and evil? Like Hashem is moral? That's an interesting thing. So Hashem says, you know what? There's two trees. Now we haven't been talking about the other tree. We've been talking about the Eitz Adat, but there's another tree. And that Eitz is called Eitz Achayim. And that's Betochagan. That is supposed to be the middle of the garden. Right? Chava moves that out of the garden. She's focused on Eitz Adat. But Hashem says, no, the Eitz Achayim is the middle of the garden. But now, now you're going to have a hard time getting to the tree. So out of the pool, out of Gan Eden, and we're going to put two what? To guard the path 
to the Eitz Achayim. Anybody remember? No, not Serafim. Kruvim. Two Kruvim. Right? Vayasem Sham. Hashem places there. Right? Um, Vayegarish at Adam. Hashem chases us out of Garnadin. Vayashkin mikedem laganidin ta Kruvim. Hashem put Kruvim. Now what Kruvim are, we're not going to get into right now. Cherubs, celestial beings, whatever they are. Right? Okay? Allegorical dono. And what are they doing there? Lishmor at Derech Eitzachim. Okay? They're supposed to protect, cherish, direct the path to the Eitzachim. Now this is interesting. What are these Kruvim? Well, if you want to understand Pshat, there's only one other place in the entire Torah that you find the Kruvim. They're in the Mishkan. And where are they in the Mishkan? They're in the Kodesh Kodashim. What are they doing in the Kodesh Kodashim? They're sitting on top of the Aaron. What are they guarding in the Aaron? They're guarding the Torah. Or they're directing you and focusing you on the Torah. And what do we call the Torah? The Eitzachayim. Eitzachayim in the Machzikimba. So what's going on with that? All right. So what, here we go. This is Gishmak. This is Gishmak. The Rambam. Listen to this Rambam. I must have learned this Rambam 50 times. And I never noticed this particular way of looking at the Rambam until a student of ours, Avi Altschuler, who's uh, whatever, Talmud from year five, I think, whatever, and uh, recently pointed this out to me, and I was like, you know, I never saw the Rambam that way, even though it's clearly what he says. Listen to what the Rambam says. The Pasuk says... And by the way, the best thing about this is I pulled the wool over everybody's eyes here. I quoted the Pesach, translated the Pesach, and nobody called me on it. The Pesach says, Right? Hashem says, Adam is like us. Right? By the way, you do find the word Mimenu that means God-like. Anybody know where that is? It's by Chetam You Look it up. Okay? I'll spare you the details there. Right? So, so that's one way of understanding it. But the Rambam says something different. And Avi pointed out, listen to what the Rambam says. The Rambam says it's in Hilkos Juba and Parakeh. It says like this. Right? Rishut um, Adam, this is the beginning of Parakeh, very important halacha. Rishut kol Adam nitunalo. Every person has freedom of choice. Right? You want to head in the good path? Tov? You can do that. And you have the freedom to choose the wrong path, evil, ra, and be a Russia, and be wicked. This is where it says in the Torah, This unique species that we call Adam, he is unique to the entire world of creation. And there is no other in this world quite like him. Right? He has the ability to know the difference between good and evil. In other words, don't read the Pasuk. Read it like, change where the comma is. 
Adam has now become the unique species, possibly the unique species he's meant to be. Mimenu ladat tovara. He has the capacity to discern good and evil himself. Now the Rabbah and the Mornavuchim says something fascinating. He says, it cannot be that man doesn't know the difference between good and evil. Because he's held accountable for it. However, eating from Eitzadat Tovarat transforms his relationship with good and evil. There's a magnificent article that was written. He turned it actually into a book, but I forget the name of the book. Written by a Rav named Rav David Foreman, who's the founder of Aleph Beta. It's a beautiful uh, sefer. And, um, and he describes it as follows. He says, and if you want to flush out this whole idea, you can read it. It's like, yeah, it's a 70-page article. Um, he says, before we eat from Eitzadat Tovara, what's our concept of Tovara, of good and bad? True and false. If you bring me, you know, when I was a kid, I hated Brussels sprouts. And my mother, my mother's many amazing things. But an incredible cook is not her, like, we joke about it in the family. And she must have heard from somebody when I was a little kid that you have to give for his Brussels sprouts has a lot of vitamins and chvestish. So she would boil these Brussels sprouts in a pot and put them on a plate. Now, a lot of things my mother made are unbelievable. Her macaroni cheese is legendary, right? Her meatloaf is legendary. But Brussels sprouts wasn't up there. And because, you know, she was English and proper and whatever, so you didn't leave the table until you finished what was on your plate. And that included the Brussels sprouts. And I hated these Brussels sprouts. And if you don't know what I mean and you want to experience it, go boil some Brussels sprouts and try eating them. Really. Good luck to you. Right? We, we, would, we would hide them at the table. We would put them in our pockets. We would like, we'd never dog to feed them to, whatever. And so I hated Brussels sprouts. To this day, right, if you put Brussels sprouts on my plate, I will not be able to look at it. Now, if I'm sitting in a plate, there's a plate in front of me, and it's got, you know, a burger, okay, in a bun, with french fries and onion rings topped with barbecue potato chips. And next to it is Brussels sprouts. If you ask me which is good, before eight a dot, obviously the Brussels sprouts are good because they're healthy and they're better for you. But if you ask me which is good after eight a dot, good takes on a whole different meaning. Good isn't just what's true. Good is what I think is good. Good is what's good for me. Good is what I feel good about. And so the hamburger becomes good and the Brussels sprouts become bad. Now why does that happen? That happens because I'm no longer objective about good and evil. What critical piece of the recipe has changed? Desire. Chemda. Right? What does the snake represent? What does it mean that the snake is naked? An animal is naked. You know what it means an animal is naked? An animal is what it is. You know, you won't find, you know, my wife is not a big fan of cats, right? She doesn't like cats. They come, they pish on our deck, she doesn't like cats. It's just this crazy thing she does when a cat comes out to chase them away, and it actually works. The cats stop coming to our house, right? She comes out there, whatever, it's like a little scary, and, and they go away. She's like, basically like, you're a little cat, I'm a big cat, don't mess with me. Now, let's say a cat wanted to come into our house. So if a cat was smart, it would knock on the door, and it would say, woof, 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 my wife likes dogs. But a cat can't do that. A cat is a cat. It can't be a dog. We can do that. Right? So the nakedness of a cat is this is who I am. Nakedness represents the animal in me. 
the Nachash, where the literally allegorically sees Adam and Chava having relations, when two people are having relations in public. Okay? If you were sitting on a bus, and two people sitting across you started smooching, or let her, never mind by doing more, so you'd say, okay, they're the behemoths. They're like animals. That's an animal-like behavior. But why is that an animal-like behavior? Because it feels good. It's what I want. I just do it. You'll never find the hyena. Right? Do you know how hyenas eat? They follow the lions. And the lions attack, or really lionesses, that's another discussion. They attack. They kill, I don't know, the antelope. And they take the best choice meat. And then the hyenas come down when the lions are done, and they, right? And it's disgusting. I mean, if you ever watch a National Geographic, I used to, when the kids were little, I would sometimes find National Geographic. It took me a while to realize, guys, guys, we're almost done, come on. It took me a while to realize that, that not everything in National Geographic is for your kids to watch. And I remember once I was watching this like National Geographic on the, the, the Serengeti, and there's this thing where the hyenas are ripping apart this, it was disgusting. You'll never find a hyena that says, you know, I need to work on myself. This is not nice. I'm going to fast today. They don't do that. Because they're animals. If you want something and you're hungry, you eat. If you need to pish, you pish. You need to do a fishtunk and you do a fishtunk. That's what they do. We're human beings. We can keep it inside. Not everything needs to be public. Not every desire that I have needs to be acted upon. Because sometimes there's, there's something higher than that. You can, sometimes, you can now have a relationship with good and bad in a different plane. You will have to struggle with your desires. But you also have free choice. And that's what takes us back to Noah. The whole message of Gan Eden is that to be a human, you need to have the ability to choose. And that means that you can take the wrong path. And what allows us to rise above the animal of ourselves is that we recognize that just because we want something doesn't mean that's what we should be doing. That's a powerful idea. It means I have to ask myself, why do I want it? And does Hashem want me to want it? So you say to yourself, okay, that's on an individual level. What happens in Noah? So you think, okay, you know what? An animal does its own thing. Maybe we'll all get together and we'll keep each other in check. We'll create society. We'll, we'll set up a system of... Hear this out, this is important. We'll set up a system of rules. We'll have a democracy. We'll have a, a parliament. We'll all get together. And so they, they leave the flood and they leave the ark and they find a valley, which I think represents that they're going down, but okay... And they're going to build a tower which may mean that they want to be the source of the heavens and they want to be the source of right and wrong. And we'll think about all together what we want. And that's also dangerous. Because whenever everybody gets all together and what we want is what makes something right, then what if what we want as right is really wrong? Right? Picture an image of the Brandenburg Gate and 100,000 Germans saluting the Fuhrer in a Nazi salute, and they're all together. But what they want is terrifying. And Hashem says, if the source of what you want is yourself, it can never be objective. 
if what you want is what's important isn't a society, that's even scarier than what happened in the first world. So we have to split that up. So what do you do now? What's the solution? How do I figure out how to channel my desires so that we can build a better world? That's the Eitz HaChayim. The Eitz HaChayim is where I find the ability as a human being to figure out what to do with my desires. How to channel them for good, how to discern what's right and what's wrong, good and evil. On the, other, on the one hand, the fact that we have desires means that we can create, that we can be motivated, we can desire. You'll never find a group of animals inventing a new invention. But it also means that we can become so animal-like that we can destroy the world. I mean, look at what's going on now in the Ukraine. One little man wants more land, wants more power, and tens of thousands of people are being murdered. That's how easy it is. Like that. There is only one recipe, from the Jewish perspective, that allows us to consider what it is we should be wanting in this world and what to do with our desires, and that's called Torah. And that's why the end of the story is, you have to leave Gan Eden, you have to take a path. Now, you're not always ready for it. It takes a while. It never says in the Torah it's forbidden to eat Neitz HaChayim. It just says this is a path that needs to be guarded carefully. This is something special. You don't just write this down in a book and make it a bestseller. You have to understand it. You have to interpret it. There are agadot in the Gemara that we don't fully understand until we get the recipe. So you spend time learning and you begin to grow in Torah and you come to Yeshiva and you spend the year learning and you begin to get the context of what that Eitz HaChayim is and then you discover Gan Eden. And that's why Breshit leads to Noach. And that's why Noach doesn't get us there. Next week, Bezrat Hashem, we'll talk about what Avram does with that. Little food for thought. Chilling downstairs in the Rambam room. And thank you to Justin and Tully Pines.